If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. It is a requirement. Is a commandment from God, and therefore you will see a lot of your patients who actually will be fasting during the Ramadan. And it's, as a clinician, I think it's really important to understand what that means for your patient. Is this a diabetic patient? Do you have a patient who is on thyroid medication? Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Today, we're talking about Somalia because Washington has the third largest population of Somalis outside of Minnesota and Ohio. There are about 150,000 Somali immigrants in the United States and 20% live in Washington. Of course, this is subject to undercounting, for a lot of reasons, so nobody really knows the true numbers here in Washington or in the U.S. Let's start this episode talking a little bit about Somalia. Somalia is an important commercial center because of its location. It's located in the Horn of Africa with the Gulf of Aden to the north and the Indian Ocean to the east. It's in the perfect location for trade routes, and many empires were built around this region. For example, in the 12th century, the kingdom of Magadishu built a large and vast empire that was considered to be one of the richest in the world. Unfortunately, this location also made it an ideal place for colonizers. Italy, Great Britain, and France. Much of the conflict that has occurred in Somalia can be attributed to European colonialism and Cold War politics. Both of these forces have divided one people, the Somali people, into five states. Subsequently, has led to land occupation by warlords, displacement of its inhabitants, and poor health statistics. For example, right now, Somalia has the highest maternal mortality rate and the second highest infant mortality rate in the world. Given this history, around 1990 or so, refugee assistant groups helped resettle Somali immigrants in the U.S., They built a tight-knit community, they established businesses, religious organizations, and communication networks. Check out Runta News or Somali TV when you get a chance. Some say they've been able to build this kind of community because they're largely homogenous. What I mean by homogenous is most people that live in Somalia are Somalis, and 99% of Somalis are Sunni Muslims. We have Ahmed Ali today to talk a little bit more about Somalis in Washington. Ahmed Ali is a pharmacist by profession and one of the founders and the current executive director of the Somali Health Board. Somali Health Board is a nonprofit organization that works to address health disparities within the Somali East African community. 
He's an active member within the Somali community and serves on many boards. This includes the King County Immigrant Refugee Task Force and Fred Hutchinson Health Disparities Community Advisory Board. Today, we talk about the history of Somalia, including the Somali Bantu population, the importance of understanding holidays in Islam, like Ramadan, and how to counsel patients during that time, and end the episode talking about Ayutu and Hagbad, sometimes translated as mutual aid, and how this has helped the Somali community thrive in Washington. Here's part one with Ahmed Ali. All right, Ahmed Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you, Raj, for inviting me, and I look forward to having a good conversation with you. Yeah, we were talking right before this podcast about how you're a legend in Seattle in many ways. But I think it would be helpful to talk about the history of Somalia, because I think your story is deeply connected to what's been happening in Somalia. And I just have a few notes here that I'm going to go over. Let's start in the 19th century. Somalia was divided into two regions, the British colonized northern Somalia and Italian governed southern Somalia. Until 1960, that was the case. But in 1960, Somalia gained peaceful independence and united to form the current borders of Somalia and allied with the USSR. And 10 years later, around 1969, General Barr led a coup to form the socialist military government. There was initially a lot of popular support for the government, but then it waned as regime became more and more oppressive. And then around 1970s and 80s, local clans formed to oppose and overthrow Barr. And then civil war erupted essentially from 19. 19- 80s onward to 1990s. And then from 1990 to 2012, there's a lot of transitional institutions. Really, a permanent central government wasn't formed until 2012 or so. Because of all the conflict, one number that I saw was that over 1 million people have fled to neighboring countries. And resettlement programs have enabled families to move to Europe and the U.S. And Somalis in the U.S. live predominantly in New York. Los Angeles, D.C., San Diego, and our very own Seattle. That's the background I have, and I think your story is connected to that. I just wanted to start with that. Tell me, is there anything else we should know about the history of Somalia? Absolutely right. You really covered it extremely well, and kudos to you for doing your homework. Somalia is a country located in the Horn of Africa, on the most eastern part of Africa. It's in a very unique strategic location. And if you go way back, even before the colonial times, it has seen multiple trade routes because of where it's located next Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. Going back to the scramble for Africa during the colonization, you're absolutely right. The British and the Italians divided Somalia into two sections, but the French as well. The country known as Djibouti now in northern part of the Horn of Africa are Somali ethnic and descent. So they do speak Somali. And if I walk into Djibouti and nobody will differentiate between me and the person who lives there as a citizen. So Somalia was divided into three different countries or parts by the colonialists at that time. And each of them decided to fight for their independence along the way. Southern and Northern Somalia, what's called the Greater Somalia, now formed the Republic of Somalia, which is now the country which everyone is aware of. In that context, I really want to touch on why there's so much conflict in that part of the world. There are a lot of interferences. There are a lot of 
foreign interferences and has always been that way because of the strategic location, as I've mentioned. The most Western part of Ethiopia is predominantly Somali ethnic community as well. So the Ogaden region was part of Somalia before the British actually gave that part to Somalia that has also seen a conflict between Ethiopia and Somalia in the 1970s. The northeastern part of Kenya are also predominantly ethnic Somali people that live there. So it's one thing that unites all the Somalis in that context. If you ever look at the Somali flag, it's blue with a five-sided star in the middle, which technically symbolizes all the different parts of the region of Horn of Africa where the Somali ethnic community lives. And it's a very homogeneous in a certain way, almost. I like to cautiously use the word homogeneous because besides the Somali language, there are also other dialects spoken within Southern Somalia. But the Somali language is the main language spoken in Somalia. They all practice the same religion, have the same culture, and that's where the homogeneity comes in. Again, after the Civil War in the early 80s, late 80s and the 90s, a large number of the Somali folks left the country, settled in Kenya, some settled in Ethiopia, and other parts of the Western society. You're absolutely right about as far as which states the Somalis have settled here in the United States. But the largest number is in Minnesota. Over 100,000 Somalis do live in Minnesota in the Twin Cities area. Seattle is one of the other cities that has a large number of the Somali population in the United yeah. States. That's really important for people to know the consequences of colonialism, because that, I think, was one of the causes of the conflict, right? The artificial drawing of the boundaries, as you're saying, even if the neighboring country has Somalis too, we said, no, that's a different country whenever the British Italians drew up borders for Somalia. And I think it leads to the question of what is our responsibility as colonizing nations to take care of refugees as they come to our country, because we were part of the problem back then. One part of the history that I also want to highlight is the Bantu population, just because it's a unique situation where, from my understanding, it was about two centuries ago that enslaved people were brought in from Tanzania and Mozambique to Somalia. And in Somalia, I think there's a clan system. Since the Bantu population didn't fit in the clan system, they were a persecuted minority. But I think a small population of the Bantu population is here in Seattle too. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. The Somali Bantus are ethnic minority in Somalia. When we think in terms of you know minority, it's not the same context we look here in the United States. It's a sizable population that lives in southern Somalia. And based on your research, a lot of them actually, during the slave period, moved into Somalia from either Tanzania, Malawi, and other parts of Southern Africa. Uh, were able to integrate into the community in a large aspect because majority of them do speak the Somali language, but they also hold onto their own dialects and languages from the countries where they came from. There is a sizable population of the Somali Bantu. We share a lot in similarities because they live in Somalia. They are part of the community. But the only way to identify people, to identify themselves, for folks who look exactly the same, have the same culture, the same religion, it is by bloodlines. And that is tribal affiliations, clans, subclans. And the Somali Bantu also identify themselves in that context because they have their own bloodlines as well that they, mm -hmm. they go through as a form of identification. Things have changed so much since the Civil War, because I think as folks identify that 
certain communities need to be protected. And I think we've learned along the way on that aspect, but we do bear a big burden in terms of a large number of the Somali Bantus were disenfranchised within Somalia. And a good number of the community lives here in Seattle. And even though there is that differentiation between the Somali and Somali Bantu, in most cases, when we do see each other, we identify ourselves as Somalis, but they also speak their own dialect. One of our own board of directors, the Somali Health Board, is a Somali Bantu as well, because we want to make sure that we are integrated and able to reach all of our communities in terms of the work that we do within the organization. Awesome. So now that we have the context for the history of Somalia and the immigration here, Let's talk about your story. I think your story is part of Somalia's story and history. I know you grew up in refugee camps and then finished schooling in Seattle and then decided you wanted to start a pharmacy. Tell me how that came about. I was born and raised in Somalia in 1982, before the Civil War. Much like my fellow Somalis, we were impacted by the Civil War. In 1990, when the war broke out, my family decided to move to Kenya. And that is where we settled in Nairobi. I was fortunate enough to be able to attend some schooling through family connections there. My family did spend some time in the refugee camps, but I was very young at that age. I came here in 1998. We settled here in Seattle. Did not know or never seen in the map a place called Seattle before we actually landed here. I think they draw a lottery and determine, okay, that's where you're going to go. And that was a way for my family to finally find some sort of peace, tranquility, and be able to live in stability. So we settled in Southeast Seattle in the neighborhood called Holly Park. Right now is the new Holly in Southeast Seattle. That is in October, 1998. And I, I finished high school in North Seattle, Ingram High School. That is where I completed my 10th, 11th, 12th grade. In the meantime, while I was doing high school, I was really good in science and math. That's a strength that I picked up on that. At the same time, my parents, much like any other immigrant families, put a lot of emphasis on education. My parents really wanted us to focus on education while they worked for us. My mother, bless her heart, worked really extremely hard. And interestingly enough, never went to school herself. She never held a pen. I uh, never had that opportunity, but understood that in order for us to be able to do well in this society that we had to go to school and complete that. And that is something really of a testament to a lot of the immigrant families, especially parents who understand that is a strength that they need to empower their children. After graduating from high school, I went to WSU, Washington State University, and did my undergraduate in biology, and then applied for the pharmacy program where I obtained my doctorate in pharmacy in 2008. I've always interested in how do I make an impact within the community that I came from. So practicing in the pharmacy field for some time, I really do not want to confine myself into the four walls of the pharmacy where I'm seeing one individual patient talking about the medications, the side effects, and so forth. But I really wanted to have a broader impact in public health. And with that came this opportunity to work along with fellow Somali health professionals and figure out how do we actually organize ourselves in order to impact the community, in order to make sure that the resources and the services that they are supposed to get from public health and the health institutions are supposed to serve them actually does that. And at the same time, how do we make sure that the health system understands what are the challenges facing the Somali community so that they can respond to them? And then in 2012, 2013 is when we formed the Somali Health Board, which its own mission and vision is basically be a liaison between the health systems and the Somali community in order to address health disparities facing the Somali 
immigrant refugees that speak Somali language. Yeah, that's impressive. A lot of people want to support the community, but not everybody has the idea, will, and then the action to actually make it happen. So let's dig a little deeper into the Somali Health Board. I think it's an impressive model, and we can also talk about why it needs to exist, because it's supposed to be trusted Somali leaders who can reach the Somali community about different health issues, including any emergency preparedness, because public health or healthcare institutions are not able to connect with them. Is that right? That is correct. When we initially found the Somali Health Board, I think there were a lot of other things that were happening within the larger context of public health. Oh. In 2008, 2009, I believe, there was a severe windstorm here in Pacific Northwest that there was power outages and things to that extent. Public health tried its best to make sure that communities hear about carbon monoxide poisoning and so forth. But my community was very new here in the United States. Unfortunately, there were not enough language translations that happened at that time. And yeah. there were not enough outreach that was done for a very small population of the community. And I know a lot of work was done by public health, but I think that is where Smart Health Board and its work comes in. Unfortunately, at that time, there was a family in Kent that actually experienced carbon monoxide poisoning uh, because they ended up using the stoves after the power went out and so forth. So we did have some conversations with myself and others who initially were the brain behind the Somali Health Board is to figure out how do we work with public health? How do we ensure that certain materials are actually translated into the Somali language? And we did that and we had that conversations with them at that point. The following year, there was a swine flu pandemic that hit across the country. Public health was very much alert at this point and they really did their best and translated swine flu and pork flu into Somali language. And you can imagine what the consequences were, where yeah, a lot of yeah. Somalis who are predominantly Muslim don't yeah. eat pork. They said, you know, we're not going to get this vaccine because I think the context behind it is either people who eat pork or the ingredients that is made out of this vaccine is actually pork. So there was a lot of hesitancy about the vaccination itself. And we went back to drawing board again. We said, listen, next time, before you actually send anything out, Please make sure that we communicate with us. You talk to us, let us review. Let's make sure that we're sending to the right channels. And that is what happened. We started these conversations on an ongoing basis, quarterly meetings, basically with King County Public Health and the major hospitals, Harborview, Swedish, and some of the local clinics on a quarterly basis, bringing them to the table, having them conversations with the Somali community. What are some of the challenges that are facing the community? And what are the some of the challenges facing the health systems? And Based on that, we're able to craft this model, right? Whereby there's a complete dialogue between the system and the community. And all the programs we've actually managed to establish within the Somali Health Board were developed based on discussions that came from those meetings in itself. The measles outbreak was something that did take place in Minnesota. And we ensured that knowing our community, understanding that we are very much linked. The person who is in here in Seattle actually has in its WhatsApp group, folks in Minnesota and San Diego and Somalia and any other parts of the world. So we figured that definitely we need to make sure that families who are very much interconnected are getting the right messages. We also wanted to avoid any outbreak of the measles here in Seattle and Washington State because we understand that our families also move between here and Minnesota. They will travel during the summertime. And we wanted to make sure that they are protecting their families, they are vaccinating their children 
So we took that upon ourselves and we are excited to report that there was a zero outbreak in Washington state and within the Somali community, despite the fact that we're very much interconnected and the families visit one another. There was an increase in terms of the MMR vaccinations. And one of the things that we, right, we oftentimes do is we don't ask families, go vaccinate your children or go get vaccinated. We make sure that we arm them with enough information, that we give them the right context for them to understand why they need to protect themselves and their children. There has been some pushbacks, for instance, saying we never got this type of vaccine when we're in Somalia. And we, knowing that's not the case, we oftentimes point to them like, hey, remember that particular vaccination that happened by the government? There are marks on the left shoulder of families who got vaccinated with certain vaccines back in the days. And when you have that conversation with families, they understand, wait a second, my parents actually protected me when I was younger. It's my time to make sure I protect my kids now. And that is something that I don't think any public health individual can come up with other than our own lived experiences. Yeah, yeah. What a great example. I think this is a good segue to culture because a lot of things that you mentioned about the Somali Health Board or having the people in the community lead public health messaging is because they understand the culture of the Somali community. One thing that stands out to me with the Somali community, as you mentioned earlier, was most people in the Somali community are Muslims. So that has a strong influence on their beliefs. But it's not just about a belief, it's a culture, a structure of government, and just a way of life. Most of the Muslim community here are Sunni Muslims, right? And then there's, I think, a small group of Sufis. I don't know if people understand that distinction. Is there anything we should know about Sunnis and Shiites? I think I'm not a theologian, and (laughs) I won't put you on the hook for this. (laughs) I'll explain to the little that I know. So majority of Somalis are are Sunni. I will say probably 100% are Sunni. The... Muslim sector divided into Shia and the Sunni. Predominantly in Iran and other parts of the Middle East where you'll find the Shia practicing Muslims. And the rest of the world, particularly where Somalia is, are Sunni. The Sufis are considered Sunni as well. They are also Sunni, but they're more of a mystical. It's just a practice on how they reach out to their community, how they practice the religion is a little bit slightly different. And there is a sizable population of the Sufi Somalis in Somalia. Okay, I think that'll help a lot of folks. But with Islam being such a big part of culture, I think it's important for us to really understand the holidays. Let's start with Ramadan. It happens in the ninth month of the lunar calendar. So it varies every year. But I think this year it was from April to May. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Tell me what it means for you to go through Ramadan. So Ramadan is one of the five pillars of Islam. To be a Muslim, there are certain practices that you have to fulfill. And one of them is fasting during the Ramadan, as you mentioned, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. And that basically means you are actually going for 30 days, 29 to 30, depending on the lunar calendar and the sightings of the moon, from sunrise to sunset. You are going to not eat or drink during that period of time. And this is for all able-bodied adults, those who are considered to be of mature age, those who are not sick, the seniors are exempt, pregnant women are exempt, those who are ill are also exempt as well. Travelers are also exempt, but there are some follow-ups to that. Yes, you are exempt, but you have to make it up if you are an adult and you're healthy. 
I think a lot of times there are a lot of contexts in terms of, particularly in the Western society, about intermittent fasting. It's not like intermittent fasting. It is actually abstaining from water, abstaining from drinks, any kind of drinks and water and food throughout that period of time. It could range anywhere from 15, 16, sometimes 18 hours the day, depending on whether it's summer or not. Summer in Seattle, yeah. (laughs) Summer in Seattle, exactly. If the sun uh, rises around, you know, 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., that is your last meal that you're going to have. And if the sun sets at 9 p.m., that is when you're going to be breaking your fast. One thing to remember is that as a Muslim, it is a requirement. It's not a choice. It is a requirement. Uh, It's a commandment from God. And therefore, you will see a lot of your patients who actually will be fasting during the Ramadan. And it's as a clinician, I think it's really important to understand what that means for your patient. Is this a diabetic patient? Do you have a patient who is on thyroid medication? How do you talk to them about those medications? When do we recommend for them to take those medications? Those are some of the things that's really important for a practitioner to understand what it means during the month of Ramadan. Oftentimes when we have this conversation with our patients at the pharmacy, depending on the type of medicine they are taking, if it's twice a day, Instead of saying, take two times a day, you can have that context and say, hey, take during when you break the fast and after you start the fast. Iftar is when you break the fast, so it is when you starting the, the Ramadan early in the morning and which is considered breakfast. So it's important to know that medications is not an exception, meaning you, you can't take medications during the day. Is that right? You cannot take the medications during the daytime. And that is a conversation you really need to have with your patients. And I I've done this annual Ramadan presentations during the quarterly meetings of Smart Health Board. And I always encourage clinicians to think about a month before Ramadan, especially if you're seeing a large number of Muslim patients within your clinic. A month before Ramadan, start having that conversation. What happens during the month of Ramadan? You want to make sure your diabetic patients are continuing to take their medication, continue to check their blood glucose levels. Because some of them, even though they're exempt from fasting, are very religious and will continue to fast. And you can imagine what would happen to a diabetic patient who actually decides not to take the insulin or the diabetic medications. Yeah, or take the insulin in the morning and not eat all day. Not eat all day, exactly right, yeah. The other example I like to give is thyroid medications. And a lot of times some people will skip the medicine or maybe they'll forget to take it because the doctor did not give them enough information about when to take during the Ramadan and they will take that after they break fast, which technically means you really need to take this an hour or so before you, you eat. Same thing with your reflex medications like protonics and all of that, an hour and a half, an hour before you eat. So having this conversation with some of your Muslim patients is really important and significant. It's also really important to understand the context behind the fast. It's not for you to be hungry or to be in a diet. The main reason why we do fast in the scriptures as they laid out is that you really need to understand how it is that a poor person who's hungry feels. A lot of people who are not in that type of situation will never be able to understand when someone who is poor comes and says, hey, I'm hungry. Can you spare some change? So it is meant to equalize whether you are rich or poor for folks to understand that you are sharing the food that you have. And it's a time of giving during the month of Ramadan. It's a requirement for people who have a certain wealth to give two and a half percent of their wealth during the time of Ramadan. So there's a lot of charity that goes on during the month of Ramadan. Yeah, there's two things that reminds me of. I think there's a pre-Ramadan counseling 
But also sometimes I see TSH or the thyroid lab come back and the automatic assumption from the clinicians is, oh, they're probably not taking it. So I'm going to have my staff call them to take it. But maybe we need to think about, okay, what is this patient's religion? Is it Ramadan? Is it our fault because we didn't counsel them when to take it? So they're not taking it. So that piece stands out to me. And then the second piece about fasting, I think in America, everything becomes an individualistic endeavor. Fasting is always in the context of helping myself live longer. But really, fasting in the context of Ramadan is to create a better humanity, to understand what others go through and sometimes suffer through. Okay, so that's Ramadan. And then that's Aid al-Fitr, right? That's the month after Ramadan for celebration. Yeah. So Eid al-Fitr is a celebration. It's a holiday after end of Ramadan. It's time for families to get together, enjoy meals together, exchange gifts visit one another. It is a time of celebration. We also have another Eid. So there's two Eids that throughout the year, there's Eid al-Adha, which marks end of Hajj or the pilgrimage. And this is when more than 3 million people meet and perform pilgrimage in Mecca. It's a time also of celebration. It's a time of appreciation and thanks for the life that God has given us. Meeting with families and celebrating lots of food, lots of gifts exchanged as well. In between that, there are also other minor, smaller events that does happen, not as, as big as it, both eats that I have mentioned. There are also small fastings for people who actually practice religion more to the way it's, it's in the scriptures. So you would have seniors who would, you know, fast Mondays and Thursdays consistently throughout the entire 365 days. So it's also important that your clinicians should also have that conversation with their patients as well, because sometimes... Here you are assuming, hey, this patient actually eats every single day, but they actually been fasting every single Monday and Wednesday for the last 10, 15 years. My mother is one of them. She is healthy. She walks, but she fasts every Mondays and Wednesdays or Thursdays. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I, I often tell her, mom, remind me next Thursday, I'll fast as well. Come Thursday, here I am having a breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next because, Thursday. Yeah. Or maybe next Thursday. <laughs> At the yeah. same time, she disciplined herself. And I think it's also important to understand that there are people who live their life like that. And, and in that context, as a healthcare provider, it's important to have that conversation with the patients to understand where they are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Another part of the culture in the Somali community is the idea of community and family. Some people say the normal American culture is of individualism, where we try to do things by ourselves compared to other communities who really try to support each other. So for the Somali community, I think there is a specific thing that came up called Ayuto or Hagbad, am I saying that right? I don't know if it's being followed right now, but I think that's still part of the community and culture. And this idea of mutual aid, it's been part of the Somali community, I think, as far as far back as we can go. Yes, you pronounce both of them really well. Ayuto and Hagbad are similar. It depends on where northern or southern Somalia where you are. But basically, it means collectively putting money. It's a trusted system whereby families or close members of the society, or even friends collectively join to collect certain funds together and support one another in different contexts. For instance, you, me, and five other individuals could decide, hey, listen, I need a car. It's $5,000. There's five of us. I need a car tomorrow because my car broke down. We're going to form our own Ayuto, and each of us is going to contribute $1,000 
I'll be the first one to get. And because there is also that agreement, who gets it first and who gets it last before we even start this process. And because I am the one who is in most need now, I get the $5,000 and I buy the vehicle that I need to go to work and do what I need to do. Then in the next four or five months, I'll be paying $1,000 to the next person and so forth. It's been part of the Somali culture for as long as the Somali people have been around and money has been exchanged and that has always been in place. It's also a very unique and trusting system that I don't think any other society has actually done as much as the Somali community has. We're talking about the people who actually established multi-million dollar businesses based on the same thought process whereby people put together 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 and start their own companies. Majority of the Somali businesses, I'll probably say 90% of the Somali businesses that I know started that way, whereby not a single person has even bought a dime from a bank. And the other thing to remember is that because of the religious restrictions, as Muslims, we cannot take certain loans that have interest in them. So that forbids us from going to the bank and saying, hey, I'm going to buy this business or I'm going to start this business. Therefore, I need to borrow $100,000 and with a certain percentage of interest. Unless it says zero interest, 99% of Somalis are actually going to avoid doing that. That is where the Ayuto system comes in. People buy homes that way, interestingly, where they pull their funds together and they purchase homes and the next person also does the same and so forth. I think it brings a sense of culture, a sense of trust among the community. And the larger the funds that are being collected, the more the trust exists within that group of individuals who are going to do that as well. And the other unique aspect is the trust doesn't just appear because I just think you are a Somali individual. There are the factors that come into place. Subclans and the clans itself also is a form of insurance that whereby, hey, Raj, who is part of this Ayuto, fled with $20,000, then your aunt and your uncles are in the hook for this money. So you can get away with it unless you want to bring shame to the family. So that's yeah, another yeah, that's sense of... Yeah, I think it's just important to note that because sometimes when we have these conversations, we talk about how do we get certain communities to be more American, but it's actually right. a beautiful way of supporting each other, having this Ayuto, right. because many Americans are suffering through this national epidemic of loneliness. I know you might have heard of that because people are very isolated and just having this beautiful support network is an amazing thing to witness and be part of. Thanks for joining me, Raj Sundar, in this episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember to check out part two of this conversation in the next episode. Show notes and links can be found over at healthcareforhumans.org. Feel free to comment or send me a message there. If you prefer email, email me at healthcareforhumans at yahoo.com for feedback and guest ideas. And lastly, make sure you hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. See you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duwamish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwamish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson, and Todd Harrington shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. 
There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.